All right, we are in the Gospel of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 1. So please take out your Bibles and open them up with me there. If you didn't bring your Bible with you today, perhaps you don't own a Bible, would you please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you? Mark chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you. Um, a gift from the Lord to you this morning. You need a copy of God's Word, His living and active and holy Word in our lives. Mark chapter 1, again, studying through as we started the last couple of weeks, looking at the, the ministry, the life of Jesus as recorded for us by this man, John Mark. And we last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And as we, as we will now look immediately, verse 12, it tells us right following after that event, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And we look at verse 12, it says, immediately the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, impelled, that has the idea of, of driving, of leading him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Again, last week we spoke of the fact that Jesus identifies with us in, in every way except sin. Jesus, tempted in all ways as we are without sin, experiences all the things that you and I do, yet without sin. And here we see another example of how the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God Almighty himself, taking on human flesh, exposes himself to everything that you and I go through. And we see here even temptation. And I highlight that at the very outset because we need to make a very important distinction in understanding that, guys, to be tempted is not a sin. So many people wrestle with that and carry around a lot of guilt because they say, man, I just continually battle with this temptation. If you're battling with temptation, good for you. Praise the Lord. Too many people give in. That's the problem. <laughs> we, we need to be fighting temptation. Because it's never going to go away. And we see again, it's not a sin. Jesus was tempted. And as we see in, in Scripture, it says tempted in all ways, every way that you and I are, yet without sin. And we see that it is the, the Holy Spirit of God driving him, taking him out into this wilderness area to be tempted by Satan. No, God does not tempt anyone. As a matter of fact, it says this very clearly in James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Here we see very clearly, James tells us that God does not tempt anyone. However, he allows temptation to come to us. He doesn't block that from happening to us. As a matter of fact, it's inevitable. It is going to continually come. I don't care if you were born again yesterday or if you've been walking with the Lord for decades, temptation will continually come against you. There will be that, that fort that the enemy's not going to leave you alone ever. The Lord allows it. But he gives us everything that we need to overcome it. The Bible is very clear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation will overtake you except what is common to man. And with and for every temptation, God provides to us a way out, a way through. The enemy is powerful. But please understand this, guys. He is not all powerful. 
You've heard that saying, the devil made me do it. Not true. Devil can't make you do anything. He's tempting. He's one that is cunning. He's clever. Temptation, as we see in this verse in James, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Let no one say when he is tempted. Not if he's tempted, when. And notice it says that, but each one is tempted when he is carried away. No one is immune to this. But I think it's important, and again, you can jot that verse down if you're taking notes and go back to it again later for James 1, 13 to 16. The word that's used there, lust, does speak to the, the sin of lust, but the word itself, taken by itself, literally means desire, and by itself, desire is not good or bad. God has given to each one of us desires. Every human being has desires, has, has needs. He's given them to us. When we're hungry, we have a desire for food. That's not sinful. What we do with that desire is what can lead to sin, gluttony. We, when we're thirsty, we have a desire for something to drink to satisfy that need within us. All of us, God has given every single human being the desire to love and to be loved. That is not a sin. The problem is temptation comes with every God-given desire. God gives a way to fulfill that desire in a godly way. But with every godly way, there are numerous decoys, numerous false ways that the enemy will try to convince us to use to fulfill those desires. And by the that's even when we look at that verse, it says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. Those two words, carried away and enticed, different words, but similar meaning. They talk about being baited, being drawn in. Again, using that term, that word decoy, if you would. I don't know if, if any of you have been, have grown up hunting. I did in Colorado, did a lot of hunting, did a little bit of, of bird hunting, more of that in college. And one of the things with that, again, you know, decoys, putting out decoys. They look like ducks. You get somebody who can blow the, blow the call, a sound like ducks, and the ducks come flying in thinking, hey, everything's great. Got another thing coming. <laughs> The decoys that are there, and that's what is used there, a decoy, a deception. And when it tells us here that when the lust, when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Conception there that is used, that's a decision that human beings make, that you and I make to mix the desire and the decoy. That's when it becomes sin. If we take that God-given desire and use God-given Ways to fulfill that, that's not sin. But when we give into temptation and we buy into the lie of the enemy, we take the bait, if you would, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Would you turn with me back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4? Matthew immediately precedes Mark, so you just need to flip back a few pages because Mark only gives two verses to this. And we'll see that often as we go through Mark. I mentioned he kind of gives us the, the snapshot at times. There are some stories that he expands more than in the other Gospels, but here's an example where he gives two verses that Matthew actually gives 11 to. And I think it's important that we look at this because, again, Jesus identifying us, taking on human flesh, becoming one of us, Guys, understand that Jesus faced the temptation against the enemy in the wilderness in his humanity. 
Jesus, fully God and fully man, yes, but he faced the temptation in his humanity. And we see that as we begin in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. One of the greatest understatements in the Bible, I think. (laughs) Again, in his humanity, fasting 40 days and 40 nights. In his most vulnerable spot physically, but his most powerful spot spiritually. Because during that 40 days, guys, and when fasting, and when we fast in our lives, we are putting aside the physical desire for food so that we can focus on our spiritual need of fellowship with the Father. And that's what Jesus was doing during those 40 days. And he is most ready in that for what will follow. He follows follows the the filling of the Holy Spirit. We saw that when when he was baptized. He's being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, away from all of the distractions, all of that type of thing. Guys, understand this too. The Spirit will never lead us where the power of God won't keep us. So he is led into the wilderness. And sometimes we end up in those wilderness situations, those places in our lives where we're like, Lord, Lord, why are you doing this? Why am I here? What did I do wrong? And the Lord is saying, I brought you here to get you away from everything else because I have something I need to pour into you. And here we see again Jesus now fully ready to face again in his humanity the temptations that the enemy will bring. And we're going to see some very specific things that he does with Jesus. But understand that behind those temptations are the, are the similar temptations that he will bring at us. They'll be wrapped differently. They'll come in, in different forms, if you would, but a lot of them will follow the same direction. Let's look at verse three, first of all, the first temptation. And here he is trying to get Jesus to doubt the Father's provision, as he does with you and I so often. Verse three, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Can you imagine? You have been in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, haven't eaten anything, and you have the power to tell that rock to become a loaf of bread. And that is what he's trying to do here. He's, he's getting us to doubt God's provision, his love. In essence, he's saying, the Father doesn't really care for you. Look what following him and his direction has gotten you. You're about to starve to death. It's about time you take matters into your own hands. And so often, that's what the enemy will do with us. Saying, you're in this position because you're following God, right? You know, if you would just do this, you could get out of this a whole lot faster. God says this, yeah, okay, well, but know that here's another way. And again, there's the decoy. Temptation often strikes at the area that we define as our most desperate need. We see that here, no doubt, after 40 days, most desperate need for food. But what is that in your life? Where are, where are you in your, in your walk and you're trusting with the Lord and you're feeling a little desperate about the situation and the enemy will attack you there? Could it be financial? Saying, you know, I just, I've, been, I've been following the Lord in this and man, but we're really struggling financially. Could it be in a job situation? 
perhaps in, in, in your marriage or lack thereof. Maybe you are holding out on the promise that God, God says in his word, don't, don't be unequally yoked. So you're holding out for that Christian man or, or woman in your life and you're holding out for that, but it just doesn't seem to be coming and the enemy is saying, hey, look who are following, God's got you. You're single, you're lonely. You know what? If you were to go, if you were to follow this route here, you could even, you could even bring that person to Christ. The ends justify the means. Never. Never. Maybe it's a desire to be accepted. And you're feeling like, man, everybody else seems to be doing this and in that crowd and running and doing this type of thing. And I'm, I'm left out of that. And the enemy will say, hey, if you simply compromise in a couple of these areas, you can get into that crowd. But again, in that, he'll be saying, he'll, again, he'll bring it all along, ends justifying the means. Hey, you'll be popular then. Can you imagine what you could do for Jesus if you were popular? If the enemy can get us to stress out over physical and emotional things, he knows that we will be letting our guard down in spiritual things. Look how Jesus responds in verse 4. He said, but he answered him and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's not that we shouldn't ask for, for those things. We're supposed to bring our needs to the Lord. We lift those up. If it is financial needs, lift those up to the Lord. Pray for those things. If it's a job or a spouse or, or acceptance or whatever that might be. Jesus, when he taught us how to pray, it's recorded for us again in, in the Gospels. He said, that, pray, give us this day our daily bread. Give it to us, Lord, today, what we need for today. But please understand that came right after when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. All of those other things. That's what the Lord says. That's his promise to us. Seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all of those other things will be added unto it. And if the enemy can get us to cast doubt on the word of God, his righteousness, his faithfulness, he'll say, did God really say that? Did God really say that if you focus on his kingdom, his righteousness, place that first and foremost in your life, that he'll take care of everything else? Yes, he did. Don't let the enemy lie to you. Don't let him get your mind off of that. And then we see that Jesus overcomes the first temptation again with the focus on the word of God, every word that comes. The second temptation is recorded for us in verses five and six. And this is getting, trying to get Jesus to test the father's protection. He says, then the devil took him into a holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if or since you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Again, here trying to get us to test God. And guys, we're, we're called, we're not to test God. We're supposed to trust God. Trust him in what he has promised. Trust him in what he has said that he will do. And that's how Jesus responds in verse 7. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So many times I hear people using that thing. It says, okay, well, the Bible says this, so I'm going to test God in that. Have you, ever, have you ever heard somebody say, or perhaps you've said this before, you know what, I'm putting out a fleece before the Lord. 
You know, that, that's in reference to Gideon back in, in the Bible. You know, that, that's a thing that says, can I just point out to you, that's the only time in the Bible that's used. Don't go taking something that, got, that was used back then for something that we could say, well, that's a biblical principle we should all use. No, the biblical principle we should all use is that we should trust the Lord God and wait patiently for him. Not testing, not pressing. The enemy knows the word of God. The enemy knows how to twist. The enemy knows how to contort. One of his favorite things to do is omit or add to the word of God. And that is so dangerous. Guys, we need to simply embrace what the word of God says. And the only way that we can do that is to be in it regularly. That's why I mentioned earlier, if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible that's in the chair in front of you, that's now in your hand open to the Matthew, take that home with you after the service. Read it. Meditate on it. Embrace the precious promises that the Lord gives us to us in his word because he is faithful. Trust him. Verse 8 and 9, we see the third temptation, and that's, again, trying to get now Jesus. And this is one of the main ones he uses with us, too, to shortcut God's promises. Verses 8 and 9, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. All of those things, Jesus knew he's the king of kings and lord of lords. But what Satan is saying is you don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to go through all of those things ahead. I'll give it all to you now if you simply bow down to me. Shortcutting. You can have it all and you can have it all right now. You don't have to go through all of that. Again, we see Jesus' response in verse 10. Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Guys, you can't serve two masters. The enemy will try to get you to do that all the time. Hey, you can have a vibrant relationship with the Lord and you can follow me and live in the world too. Trust me, it doesn't work. I tried. It doesn't work. You'd be the most miserable person on the planet. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You'll, either, you'll love one and hate the other. And that's the truth. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, the Bible tells us. The enemy will continually try to get us to exchange what is eternal for what is temporary. He's a liar. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We see in verse 11 kind of brings us back to where we are in Mark. It says, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. We look at these two accounts of this same situation, the same the same story that Jesus did. And guys, I remind you that Jesus faced this temptation. He faced Satan face to face as a man in his humanity. Again, so that you and I can identify with him and he could identify with us. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He went through all of that victoriously so that you and I, in our time of need, in our time of temptation, when we feel like we are at the very end, we can go to him and find help and strength in our time of need. Tells us he was tempted in every way as you and I are. Can I tell you? He was tempted in ways greater than you and I will ever face. 
Not just in ways that you and I are. All of those, yes, but in ways far greater. First of all, he was tempted by Satan himself. I don't care how important you think you are in the whole scheme of things, chances are Satan's not coming after you. <laughs> he can only be at one place in one time, and I know you are a powerful tool in the hand of God, but he's probably occupied elsewhere, just saying. <laughs> not saying that the demonic forces that are coming against us aren't just as real and powerful, but Jesus went toe-to-toe with Satan himself, and guess who crushed whose head? (laughs) He not only does this to identify with us, but also to set an example for us. Would you turn with me? Keep your finger here. We'll we'll be right back. But Ephesians chapter 6, go to the right this time. Finish out through the Gospels, Mark, Luke, John. Then you have Acts, Romans. Keep going. First and second Corinthians. Keep going. Galatians. Ephesians, stop. Chapter 6. Again, in, in his humanity and in our humanity, facing the same spiritual enemy, Paul tells us this in verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Notice again there, being tempted is not a sin. The schemes of the devil, that's the temptation. And guys, he's crafty, he's continuous coming after it, and it tells us that we can stand firm. We don't have to give one inch of ground. As a matter of fact, we need to be taking ground back. And the way that we do that, Paul tells us there, to put on the full armor of God, not neglecting a single piece. The enemy will hit us where he thinks we are the weakest and most vulnerable. So that's why we need the full armor of God. Notice verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's one of his big, his big deceptions as he tries to make it about that. It's not. Our struggle is against the rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, because of that, take up again, note, the full armor of God so that You will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Now, he goes through here this armor that we are to put on. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins. That's the belt of truth. Guys, you are holding the truth of God in your hands. That is why the word of God is so so important, such an amazing gift to us. That's why we spend so much time studying through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, our continual encouragement to you to be in the word of God. Yes, daily devotionals are great. Other Christian books are awesome, but nothing takes the place of the word of God because in this is truth. Having the truth as a belt, holding everything else in place, put on the breastplate of righteousness, guarding our hearts. Above all things, the Bible says, guys, we are to guard our hearts. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet of salvation, those two pieces at the end there, focus in just a second, the helmet of salvation. Understand this, guys. Though Jesus defeated him in these temptations in the wilderness, 
he ultimately and fully and completely and eternally defeated him at the cross in Calvary because the tomb is empty, guys, crushed the head of our, our enemy forever. And the helmet of salvation, guarding our minds there, because that's the, the enemy wants to battle for our minds. Guys, understand, because of salvation, because we are born again, we fight from a position of victory. We're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from it. Ultimately won for us at Calvary. The helmet of salvation. And here, the only offensive weapon that is used, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Guys, understand, Jesus used that over and over again. Remember, he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. The Lord used the sword of the word to defeat the enemy every time. And we have the same weapons that Jesus used in his humanity to defeat the enemy. You and I have them. The word of God, the spirit of God, ministered to by the angels of God. Hebrews tells us that is as well for us. I just think that this is such an important truth because so many times we find ourselves battling and fighting in this and we feel like we're fighting a losing battle. Guys, we are fighting from the winning side of this. And if you're struggling with sin, not against temptation, because again, that's going to continue to happen. But find yourself losing that battle over and over again. Guys, the truth, the secret, the, the access to victory is through Jesus. Remember last week, we talked about that, that as born-again believers, we are in Christ. Jesus used the illustration of the vine and the branches. He, says that he said that he is the vine and we are the branches. Apart from him, a branch can't do anything except crumble and perish and die. Can't bear fruit, can't do anything that it was created to do unless it is attached to the vine, drawing its nourishment, drawing everything that it needs from the vine. And Jesus says, I'm the vine. Abide in me and I in you, you will bear fruit abiding in him. Well, Jesus, as we see back to, back to Mark, after this, it says, verse 14, now after John had been taken into custody, that's John the Baptist, he was taken into custody and eventually executed, beheaded by Herod, King Herod. When he had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, the region of Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message as he begins to preach, notice again, the gospel of God. The good news of God that has been proclaimed and declared from before the foundation of the world. It is through that that the power of God is displayed Salvation available to everyone who will simply believe and receive the gospel message. And Jesus said the time is fulfilled. The time has completely come for this to take place. God's timing is perfect. God, God has this perfectly planned out. The world was in such a situation where it was perfect in God's timetable that Jesus would come. Rome was in control. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, those that were under, under submission to Rome at times didn't think it was all that peaceful, but there was peace overall around the world because Rome was in control. Nobody questioned that. If you did, you weren't around long. The roads, the system of travel that Rome built, some of those roads are still around. 
The language that was used, again, internationally, for the most part, people had the, the Greek language that was being used. Perfect timing. Galatians 4 says this, beginning in verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, God's perfect timing, God's perfect plan, his perfect timetable, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's you and I, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Again, there is the gospel. When the fullness of time came, God sent his only son under the law. He followed it completely, kept it. He fulfilled it, and then he paid the full penalty. He paid its curse so that you and I could be redeemed, that you and I could receive the adoption as sons. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus proclaiming that the, the, God has a kingdom. And what he's saying there is every kingdom has a king. And he's right here among you. Sovereign ruler of all things. The king was right there in their midst. Repent. Turn away. That repenting simply means to turn from. Believe means to put your trust in. Put your faith in the gospel. In the good news of God. It tells us, as we continue, verse 16, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, follow me, fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Jesus, we see here, calling the first of his disciples to follow him as disciples. And there is biblical evidence to suggest that all of the disciples that were called of the 12 were all under the age of 20 except Peter, who was probably in his early 20s. And I don't have time to go into that, perhaps as we continue to go through the Gospels and we'll have some time to go into that because I think it's pretty fascinating. But I think it's pretty amazing to think that Jesus called a bunch of teenage boys to go and change the world. We way underestimate the value, and the potential in our teenagers. It's not their first encounter with Jesus. John chapter 1, and I'll give you this to you as homework. You can read this. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35 and into the first part of chapter 2. We're told that a while before this took place, several months, some believe even perhaps a year or so before, Jesus was coming back from the time of his temptation in the wilderness. And when he came back to being where he had been baptized, when he comes back those 40 days later, John points him out and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And there were two of John's disciples that were standing around that heard that. One was Andrew, the other John. Two of the four young men that we just read about in our verses in Mark. And when they heard John point to Jesus, say, Behold, the Lamb of God, it tells us that they started following Jesus. They were, they were kind of trailing behind him, if you would. It says that Jesus notices that, and he turns to him, and he asks an interesting question. He, he says, what are you guys looking for? 
And I can just imagine, and again, I play this out in my mind, John, being the youngest of the disciples most believed, probably in his mid-teens, and Andrew, a younger brother of Peter, so maybe, I don't know, 17, 18 years old, somewhere in there. Can you imagine the one that they just said, that's the Lamb of God, they're following behind, he turns around and says, and they're like, um, uh, um, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> that was their answer. And Jesus said, come and see. And then it tells us that they spent the day with Jesus. It doesn't tell us any other information. It doesn't tell us the conversation that they had, but we know that it was so powerful, so impactful on these young men that Andrew went running to Peter and said, we found the Messiah. Oh, I'm renting that DVD. <laughs> when I get to heaven, I'm checking that one out. I wanna see what that conversation was like. And so Peter then comes, and Jesus, that's where the exchange takes place between Peter and Jesus when he says, you are Simon, son of Jonah, but you will be called Peter. Gives him that, gives him that prophetic calling and changing his name there. And it tells us then that the next day after that, Jesus going along with them now, and he sees Philip, another young man that will be one of his disciples, and he says, follow me, and he follows and it doesn't, again, tell us anything else of the conversation that's going on, but it tells us that it so impacted Philip. He went to his buddy Nathaniel and said, we found him, the one that we've been waiting for. He's from Nazareth, and that's where we mentioned last week, remember? And Nathaniel goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then that whole exchange then between Jesus and Nathaniel, and Nathaniel recognizes that he's the Messiah. So here we see this taking place in chapter 2, in John then tells us that that's, that's when on the next day after that, they went to Cana and the wedding in Cana and they where Jesus turned the water into wine. And it's after that that we see John chapter two, verse 11. This is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and note and his disciples believed in him. This takes place before where we are in Mark. They saw this, they heard what he was saying, and they believed in him. Guys, you don't have to follow Jesus long before you start seeing miracles happen. And we see that changing and radically, these, these young men, but now fast forward several months, like I said, maybe up to a year later, now is where we are in Mark, and we see Peter and Andrew, it tells us that as Jesus is walking along, along the Sea of Galilee there, he sees them and they're casting their nets. That was the, what, how professional fishermen fished back then. They had these nets that had, they were big, big circular nets and they had weights on them and a longer rope and they would cast it out and it would land and then as it was going under the water with the weights, it would do this and then they'd pull it in and all the fish that get caught up in the net, they'd pull that in. So they're casting their nets. He says, follow me. Follow me. And they left it. Left it all. It says immediately. They left their nets and followed Jesus. Keep going on a little bit further. And if you've been to Israel or seen pictures or if you're planning on our, our next trip, you'll experience that next year, Lord willing. You walk, when we walk around, you see you can you get up in that area, Capernaum and all of that area, you can see and it just it just comes alive because it's not this massive ocean. It's just a big lake. And Jesus, walking a little bit further along, he sees James and John, and it tells us, note, they were mending their nets. 
fixing them, cleaning them after a night of fishing, getting them all ready for the next, the next day. And he says to them, follow me. And it says that they immediately left their dad, Zebedee, in the boat with the servants. Zebedee had a pretty good fishing business going on, it looked like. It says they left that to follow Jesus. And I, I, I love this. And I, when we unpack this together, as we continue to move through the gospel of Mark and looking at how he's calling these other disciples, we're going to see, guys, he doesn't go and he pick, pick all the PhDs and the presidents of corporations, and all of that. As a matter of fact, he's picking teenage boys who, by the way, do you know why they were fishing? Because they weren't picked by any other rabbis to be a part of their schools. All Jewish boys grew up with those opportunities and being a part of the synagogue and the teaching there and everything, and the rabbis would pick the brightest and the best and all of that and, and continue to train them and, and pour into them the education and the training and all that. Those that didn't quite make that cut, you went back out and started working in the family business? I've heard it said, and I appreciate that because I believe it's so true. The only ability that Jesus truly cares about is availability. Are you willing to make yourself available to whatever it is that he would have you do? And notice he says, I will make you. He didn't call them because they already had it. He says, I'm going to make you. I'm going to make you what I need you to be to fulfill the place that I have you in the work that I'm doing. And that is such a great comfort because bottom line, again, availability and the willingness to say, okay, everything that I have, all of my plans, all of my goals, everything that I have is secondary to what you have for me, Lord. We have to just have that willingness to say, God, whatever, it's all a gift from you anyway. Everything that we have is a gift from God. And to say, you know what, Lord, that's what you've given to me. Thank you. But that's secondary to what you would have for me now. And because of their willingness to walk away from, from this, God changed them. He changed their lives. He changed their paths. He changed, he gave them, poured into them and gave them abilities that they didn't have before. And with that, he used those teenagers to turn the world right side up. Jesus says this in John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. You didn't choose me. I chose you and I appointed you. I have, I have given you a directive. I have given you the task. I think it's interesting when we look at this and I don't want to read into this too much, but I just think it's interesting to note. Notice some of them were casting nets. Others were mending nets. Both of those pieces are vital to catching fish. And God uses both of those and other gifts, other things. Somebody had to take care of the boat. Somebody had to take care of the other things. Somebody had to take the fish to the market. Somebody, all of those things, God uses all of that. And he plugs us in where he wants to. I love the visual of that part when you hold it up in Ephesians where it tells us that some he's called to be evangelists, some he's gifted to be pastors, teachers. Evangelists, casting out the nets. Pastor teachers, mending the nets. 
Perhaps you've heard this said, one of my, a quote I heard a long time ago that just so blesses me. Guys, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. If we will simply respond to his call, he will give us what we need. He is the one. He said, I will make you fishers of men. They weren't fishers of men, and that's why he chose them. I will make you fishers of men. Acts 4.13, one of my favorite parts in that whole story as the disciples are stepping out in faith and, and filled with the Holy Spirit and God using them, it tells us that they were totally baffling the Pharisees and all these religious leaders. How in the world are these guys having such an impact on all of the people? Because they're uneducated and untrained men in their eyes, in their schools, and then it says, but then they realized that they had been with Jesus. Guys, that's the key. Being with Jesus. He's the one who's going to change. He's the one who's going to tr transform. If we simply make ourselves available, saying, all right, Lord, wherever you go, I'll go. You said, follow me? Okay, I'll follow. Can I point out something that to me is very obvious? Perhaps you missed that. But do you notice what wasn't asked and what wasn't answered? He said, follow me. Where? <laughs> they didn't ask, and he didn't say. And can I say that I, I, I think that there's probably more than one of us in here that that's the hurdle that, I have, that you haven't gotten over? You're saying, you know, I know that the Lord is calling me to follow him, but he hasn't told me where, and that scares me. Because I believe that if I say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, he's going to take me somewhere that I hate, that I really, really don't want to go. He's going to have me do something that, quite honestly, I just, there is no way I can do. Guys, that's my story. I grew up in Colorado. And I'm going to tell you, 25 years ago, you tell me I'm going to live in Phoenix, I'd say, you're nuts. There is no way. you got to be crazy to live in Phoenix. It's 115 degrees down there. Are you nuts? <laughs> Guys, you couldn't get me out of surprise now unless God said go. I love this place. This is home for me and my family. There's no other way. I don't want to be anywhere else. If you told me 10 years ago I'd be doing this right now, I'd say you are crazy. I can't get up in front of 10 people. But again, he's the one who does it. And we need to simply trust. And need to say, all right, Lord, you're saying follow you? Okay. I trust you. I give up control. I'm going to let you do what, what you do. You're God. You're all powerful. You know everything. And you're asking me to follow you? Okay. I know there's some in here today or watching, watching online. The Lord right now is even calling you to follow him for the very first time. You've never taken that step to follow him. You've never, never stepped after him. And I want to go back. Would you go with me just as we close? Go back with me to verse 15 because Jesus says this. The time is fulfilled. The time is perfect. 
You are not here today. You're not listening to the sound of my voice right now by accident. This is a divine appointment that God has for you. And he says, the time is, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is right here, right now. The risen King of kings and Lord of lords is right here, right now, and he has an appointment with you, and he is saying, follow me. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. That means to turn from what you're currently placing your trust in, whether that is being a good person, going to church, reading your Bible, tithing. If you think those things will get you to heaven, you need to repent. Turn from that. And believe. That means to put your trust in. We call it faith. Put your trust in the gospel, in Jesus Christ. Trust in him and him alone. The gospel, that's the good news. But not just any good news. Notice it says the gospel. The gospel. There's only one that can save you. There's only one bit of good news that can save you. Good news isn't good news if it can't deliver what it promises. And that's the problem with all of these other forms that say all roads lead to heaven. You just got to da-da-da-da-da. doesn't matter what you believe as long as you really believe it. That's a lie. And you might sound like good news, but it can't deliver what it promises so that it's the worst news possible. The gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the only way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You have to come through him. But he has paved the way completely for you. Suffering and dying in your place on the cross, shedding his perfect blood for you to pay for every sin you've ever committed. But you have to put your faith in him. And for all of us with this, in Christ, following him, following him fully. I've used this illustration before, so if you've heard it, bear with me. Perhaps it's just a good reminder. If you haven't, this is really drives it home for me. What does it mean to put my faith in Jesus, in the gospel? There's a man lived a long time ago. His name was Charles Blondin, and he was world famous as a tightrope walker. And one particular time, he had a tightrope stretched across Niagara Falls. And he grabbed the big pole, you know, and he walked across it a couple of times, and the crowd is going crazy. I mean, thousands and thousands of people came out to watch him do this. Well, then he puts the pole down, and he grabs a wheelbarrow. And he pushes the wheelbarrow across the tightrope and back. And the crowd is going nuts, because that, that pole that helps balance, that's, I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole key he put that down, wheelbarrow, gets back to the other side. The crowd's going crazy. He says, do you believe that I could do it again? Everybody, yeah, 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 going crazy. Do you believe I could do this again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says to this front man in the front row, young man, do you believe that I could do it again? Yes, I do, sir. He says, get in the wheelbarrow. what it means guys Jesus today is calling every one of us regardless of where you are in your walk with the Lord again if you've never taken that step 
or if you've been walking with the Lord for decades. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you think, I had that call once. I know that, that Jesus called me to follow him, but I missed it, and I, I believe I, I've lost my opportunity. No, he's here today again saying, follow me. Guys, get in the wheelbarrow. Trust him. He's faithful. Where? I don't know. But wherever it is, when you get there, you will not have wanted to be anywhere else more in your whole life. You will find joy and fulfillment where God leads you that you can't find anywhere else. Because you were made for that. And he called you for that. And you just need to trust him. And it involves surrender. It involves saying, okay, Lord, here it is, whatever that means. Would you please stand? Let's pray together and then close in, in a song of just worship for our King. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you again for who you are, almighty, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, King of kings, Lord of lords, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, yet you chose to step off your throne in glory and become one of us, to fully identify with us. Lord, we see temptation that you exposed yourself to in your humanity. Lord, we, we see that you did that so that, that we could come to you in our time of need. We have access to all that you are. Lord, my prayer this morning is for anyone who is struggling with an area of sin in their life that has struggled with beating this temptation as it comes, Lord, that they would learn to abide in you, receiving everything that they need in their moment of temptation so that they can have victory going forward. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the call that you've given to us to follow you. And if you're here today and you've never taken that step, get in the wheelbarrow. Trust him. <clears throat> Trust in his completed work on the cross for you. Respond to the Holy Spirit as he's calling and leading in your heart right now. And Lord, I ask that you would call each of us here today deeper into a fuller more, more fully committed relationship with you. And Lord, we don't know where that is, what that means, but we know that we can trust you. As we close in this time of worship, I'd like to ask if you need prayer for any reason, if you're, if you're here even right now and still struggling with this call in your life to follow the Lord and, and wherever that might be, whatever it might entail, I'd like to invite you to come on forward and we'll have prayer team members up here, elders, pastors to pray with you, but maybe you just even want to come forward and just kneel down before the Lord and just give that up to him. I want to invite you, I want to encourage you to respond as the Holy Spirit moves and as the Lord Jesus calls you to follow him.